0: welcome to script bits a show for writers film buffs and everyone in between each episode we take a closer look at one section of a great screenplay and find out what it can teach us about storytelling this week we'll be checking out a bit from the screenplay for jojo rabbit i'm bruv hansen and this is script bits hello everybody and welcome to script bits today we are going to be looking at a scene from the dark satire Jojo Rabbit. Before we begin today's episode, I'd like to give a quick shout out to our Indian audience. As the whole world is aware by now, we have a new vice president-elect in this country, Kamala Harris. She will be the first female vice president of the United States and the first VP of Black and Indian Ancestry. Her accomplishment is a wonderful milestone for this country and I know that those of you who are listening from India are proud of her as well. Alright, let's get to it. A little background on today's script bit. Jojo Rabbit was released in 2019. It was written and directed by Taika Waititi, based on the book Caging Skies by Christine Luenens. The script won the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. The story takes place in Nazi Germany toward the end of World War II. It's about a little boy named Jojo, who is a fervent believer in the Nazi cause. He even has Adolf Hitler as an imaginary friend. When Jojo discovers that his mother, Rosie, is hiding a Jewish girl named Elsie in their home, he must confront his cherished political beliefs and discover his true character. Today's bit comes from the shooting draft dated February 8, 2019, which is available online. The beat begins at the bottom of page 41 with the direction, Jojo Watches Rosie. She Barely Touches Her Food. In this scene, Jojo and Rosie are having a tense dinner. Earlier, Jojo discovered that his mother has been hiding a Jewish girl, Elsie, to protect her from the Nazis. Jojo remains ridiculously loyal to the Third Reich and strongly disapproves of Rosie's choice to help Elsie. However, He cannot reveal to his mom that he knows about Elsie's existence, and Rosie is beginning to suspect that her son knows something is up. All right, let's read this bit. Jojo watches Rosie. She barely touches her food. Jojo, you aren't eating? Rosie, not that hungry. I might have some later. For now, I'm just going to chew on these grapes. Jojo, well, I'm especially hungry tonight. So maybe I'll just finish yours. Silence. Glaring at her son, Rosie angrily eats her food. Rosie. How was your day, Johannes? Jojo. Oh, you know, just wandered around being a deformed kid with nothing to live for. Rosie. You're not deformed. Jojo. My face looks like a street map woman. Rosie. That's not my fault. You did that to yourself. Jojo. I wouldn't expect you to understand. If my father were here, he'd get it. Rosie, well, he's not. Jojo, I know. And instead I'm stuck with you. Rosie takes a breath, then swigs deeply from a wine bottle. Rosie, you want your dad, hmm? Jojo, yeah, I do. Rosie, yeah? Jojo, yeah. Rosie, okay, fine. She storms out of the room. A second later, she returns wearing her husband's military jacket. She walks to the fireplace and scoops up some ash and rubs it across her face to make a beard. Putting on a deep voice, she slams her fist down and yells in JoJo's face. Rosie, dad voice. Don't ever talk to your goddamn mother like that. JoJo sits back, shocked at the outburst. Rosie walks away and stands in the corner, after a few beats. Rosie, Paul, what happened? Her back still to us, Rosie begins a conversation between herself and her husband. Rosie, as dad. I yelled at the kid. Rosie, you should apologize. Dad, to Jojo. Sorry, kid. Rosie, you call that an apology? Do it properly. He misses you talk to him. Rosie Dad approaches the table and crouches before Jojo. Rosie, Dad, to Jojo. Jojo, I know you miss me, but I'm out there trying to make a difference in the world, and while I'm gone, I need you to take care of my Rosie for me. Can you do that? Jojo nods. Rosie, Dad, can you? Jojo, yes. Rosie, Dad, thanks. She's doing what she can. Jojo, smiling. Yes, Dad. Rosie, Dad. We've got a good kid there, Rosie. I love him to bits. Jojo, I love you too, Dad. Rosie, Dad. Almost as much as I love this stuff. She grabs a bottle of wine from the table and takes a big swig from it. Rosie, Dad. Boy, does that taste good. Reminds me of dancing with my Rosie at the Red Salon. Remember, honey? Rosie. I do, babe. She stumbles across to the record player, turns up the music, and starts dancing like a loon in the lounge. Rosie, dad voice. Hey, kid, don't just sit there. Come dance with your parents. Jojo laughs and gives in. He goes and dances with his mother. Rosie holds her son close, squeezing him tightly, kissing him, not letting go. Well, that is such a beautiful and affirming scene, I think. Hmm. There is a ton of really interesting stuff going on in this scene. For today's discussion, I'm going to focus on three concepts. Proxy Battles, Theatricality, and Persuasion. First, I'm going to talk about the concept of Proxy Battles, as it applies to screenwriting. Let's look at the first part of this bit. Jojo watches Rosie. She barely touches her food. Jojo, you aren't eating? Rosie, not that hungry. I might have some later. For now, I'm going to chew on these grapes. Jojo, well, I'm especially hungry tonight, so maybe I'll just finish yours. Silence. Glaring at her son, Rosie angrily eats her food. Let's review what's happening. Jojo knows that Rosie is hiding Elsie upstairs and, being a loyal little Nazi, greatly disapproves. Rosie is beginning to suspect that Jojo knows her secret. Instead of discussing the elephant in the room, however, Jojo and Rosie engage in a somewhat passive-aggressive fight over Rosie's food. Rosie isn't eating because she wants to save her food for Elsie. Jojo knows this, and decides to test her by asking why she's not eating. Rosie lies, then JoJo presses the issue by saying he'll eat her dinner if she isn't going to. Rosie angrily begins to eat. The main conflict between Rosie and JoJo has nothing to do with Rosie's dinner, but with their shared knowledge of the girl Rosie's hiding upstairs. The real war, so to speak, is not about Rosie's food, but JoJo and Rosie's deeply held and competing worldviews, Nazism and Pacifism, respectively. JoJo's character arc for the entire film will end when he discards his Nazism completely, but that won't happen until later. Before this grand awakening occurs, how can we dramatize this tension? The answer? A proxy battle. Proxy battles, or proxy wars, are wars fought in smaller theaters at the behest of more powerful and often hidden interests. For example, the Spanish Civil War, which began just before World War II, was a proxy war between two outside adversaries. The Germans supplied soldiers and other resources to the nationalists on the right, and the Russians offered their clandestine support to the Spanish communists. The battles occurred on Spanish soil, but it was really a war between two stronger nations, both vested in advancing their own interests and ideologies. In fact, some historians characterize the Spanish Civil War as a rehearsal of sorts for those same powers before they clashed in World War II. This is a classic proxy war. This same idea appears, metaphorically, In this moment of Jojo Rabbit, Waititi finds a locus for their ideological struggle, Rosie's food. Her dinner plate is a tangible object, a thing that they can fight over in the here and now. This proxy battle for the larger conflict accomplishes two things. First, it simplifies the character's objectives. Rosie wants to feed Elsie, and JoJo wants to prevent that from happening. Secondly, it sets up a miniature game. And the nice thing about games, for dramatic purposes, is that they have a zero-sum outcome. Someone will win, and someone will lose. The game JoJo and Rosie are playing involves a simple logistical question. Can Rosie manage to smuggle food to Elsie? The proxy battle ends definitively, when JoJo's final gambit of threatening to eat Rosie's food forces Rosie to eat it herself instead of giving up her secret. JoJo 1, Rosie 0. If you find yourself struggling to dramatize your character's conflicting beliefs, try shrinking them in scale and connecting them to something concrete. Your character's Ideological and moral wars can find life in the here and now through proxy battles fought over the everyday and mundane. Next, I'd like to talk about a really unique feature of this scene. It's theatricality. Let's take a look. Jojo. My face looks like a street map woman. Rosie. That's not my fault. You did that to yourself. Jojo. I wouldn't expect you to understand. If my father were here, he'd get it. Rosie. Well, he's not. Jojo. I know. And instead, I'm stuck with you. Rosie takes a breath, then swigs deeply from a wine bottle. Rosie. You want your dad, hmm? Jojo. Yeah, I do. Rosie. Yeah? Jojo. Yeah. Rosie. Okay, fine. She storms out of the room. A second later, she returns wearing her husband's military jacket. She walks to the fireplace and scoops up some ash and rubs it across her face to make a beard. A common challenge in writing is to create an interesting scene between two people in a normal context, like dinner at the kitchen table. How can we make these scenarios really pop? Writers often fall back on dialogue to tell the story, but these scenes are a fantastic opportunity to add some theatricality to your film. What do I mean by theatricality? To me, theatricality is the art of playing pretend. It's characterized by its simplicity. When you were a kid playing make-believe, what did you require in order to create distant and fantastical worlds? Almost nothing. A stick was a gun, a tree a dragon, A Jungle Gym, A Mountain. Kids summon entire universes into being with the barest of props, relying on their imaginations to fill out the rest. The limitations of their reality constrain what resources they can use to create their stories. This is also true of theater. Plays unfold in real time and within the same space as their audience. They cannot rely on cinematic bells and whistles. Like children, the best theater artists embrace these constraints and rely on their imaginations to summon incredible events. In his staging notes for the iconic play, Angels in America, playwright Tony Kushner writes that, "...the play's moments of magic are to be realized as bits of wonderful theatrical illusion." which means it's okay if the wires show, and maybe it's good that they do. Waititi brings this same spirit of theatricality to this beat. The movie implies that Jojo's dad, Paul, may have died or disappeared fighting for the resistance in Italy. He's not coming back anytime soon. But with a bit of theatrical resourcefulness, Rosie manages to summon her husband to the present. Rosie throws on her husband's old army jacket and swipes a makeshift charcoal beard across her face. What we wear changes the energy we bring into a room. Rosie's dramatic change in costume and demeanor metamorphosizes her into Jojo's dad. Jojo will not literally believe his dad is in the room, but emotionally, imaginatively, Rosie's betting that he will respond to her dad energy. Let's read ahead. She walks to the fireplace and scoops up some ash and rubs it across her face to make a beard. Putting on a deep voice, she slams her fist down and yells in JoJo's face. Rosie, dad voice. Don't ever talk to your goddamn mother like that. JoJo sits back, shocked at the outburst. Rosie walks away and stands in the corner. After a few beats, Rosie, Paul, what happened? Her back still to us, Rosie begins a conversation between herself and her husband. Rosie, Dad, I yelled at the kid. Rosie, you should apologize. Dad, to Jojo, sorry, kid. Rosie, you call that an apology? Do it properly. He misses you. Talk to him. Rosie Dad approaches the table and crouches before Jojo. Rosie, Dad, to Jojo. Jojo, I know you miss me, but I'm out there trying to make a difference in the world. And while I'm gone, I need you to take care of my Rosie for me. Can you do that? Jojo nods. Rosie, Dad. Kenya, Jojo, yes. Rosie, Dad, thanks. She's doing what she can. Jojo, smiling. Yes, Dad. Rosie, Dad. We've got a good kid there, Rosie. I love him to bits. Jojo, I love you too, Dad. Rosie, Dad. Almost as much as I love this stuff. She grabs a bottle of wine from the table and takes a big swig from it. Perhaps the most important aspect of effective theatricality is the actor's complete imaginative release into the make-believe. After donning her new costume and mask, Rosie yells at Jojo in a dad voice and slams her fist on the table, stunning him into silence. She then lets the essence of her husband possess her so thoroughly that she has an imagined conversation with the man. We all know, as does Jojo, that she's playing a part but her act is much more than just a superficial impersonation. Her total commitment materializes his presence, if only figuratively. For all intents and purposes, Dad is in the room. The ability to take on a foreign spirit is not just the stuff of actors and children, but a phenomenon that shows up in a variety of human contexts. For example, in Haitian voodoo or Vodun, a nocturnal ritual known as the dons invites one of the practitioner's gods, or iwa, to take over her body so that witnesses can interface directly with the deity. People who undergo this possession have no memory of the time the iwa possessed them, and they, along with the other congregants, believe wholeheartedly that a god graced their presence. The point is that humans are natural vessels for a variety of imagined personalities and spirits. Most of us lose that capability after a certain age, along with the belief that it's possible. But, cleverly used, a character's possession by another being, even as a game, will still have an emotional impact on viewers. Rosie's play within a play brings a painful and complex issue between her and her son, Jojo's dad, into three-dimensional form. Her make-believe shows us the depth of their relationship and the hole that his absence has left. Rosie conveys this backstory without any flashbacks, CGI, or any other device native to film. With a little bit of theatricality, a dime store costume change, a gulp of alcohol, and an imaginative commitment, a larger-than-life figure in our characters' lives suddenly appears. If you're writing a scene that feels flat, consider adding a dash of theatricality. More often than not, it can open up whole new areas of expression and storytelling. JoJo begins this scene treating Rosie with open contempt but by the end, they're dancing and laughing together. To understand how Rosie changes her son in such a short amount of time, it will be helpful to review the ancient art of persuasion. The great Roman orator Cicero taught that when it comes to persuasion, you can have three different goals. To change someone's mood, mind, or willingness to act. He argued persuasively that these goals go in order of ascending difficulty, e.g., it is easier to change someone's mood than it is to change his mind, and it is easier to change someone's mind than it is to change his willingness to act. In a stroke of motherly wizardry, Rosie manages to accomplish all three. Jojo and Rosie's conflict at the beginning of the scene runs deep, and it spans multiple categories. They have vastly different politics, a strong difference of opinion about the stowaway in the attic, the shared, mutual pain of an absent father and husband, and a general air of distrust, suspicion, and alienation. Rosie's main desire in this scene is to have her son love and accept her once again. Recall that toward the beginning of this bit, Jojo outright says, If my father were here, he'd get it, speaking about an injury he sustained at youth camp. Rosie points out that his father isn't here, and Jojo hisses, I know, and instead I'm stuck with you. Let's return to persuasion. Before they even begin, skilled persuaders first control the context of the argument they're about to make. They consider the environment they want to foster in order to set the tone for their seduction. Rosie does this by fashioning a new, pretend reality in which Jojo's dad is alive and present in the room. When Jojo tells Rosie off, she throws back a slug of wine and undergoes the theatrical transformation we've discussed. Jojo's dad arrives, so to speak, and Rosie flips the tone of the scene on its head. Now she's ready to persuade. Remember that the first and easiest step in the long journey of persuasion entails first changing someone's mood. After Rosie transforms into her husband, the first thing she does is slam her hand on the table and admonish Jojo to never talk to his goddamn mother like that. Waititi writes that Jojo sits back, shocked at the outburst. Step one is complete. She successfully changed Jojo's mood. Cicero tells us that once you've changed someone's mood, they become vulnerable to argument, and you will have an easier time with the next step, changing their mind. Rosie wants to make Jojo remember his love for her. So, still in the character of Dad, She puts on a little play where she tells Paul to apologize for yelling at his son. Paul, in quotes, gives a half-hearted apology, and Rosie, going back to herself, says, You call that an apology? Do it properly. He misses you. Talk to him. Here's what happens next. Rosie Dad approaches the table and crouches before Jojo. Rosie, Dad to Jojo. Jojo, I know you miss me, but I'm out there trying to make a difference in the world. And while I'm gone, I need you to take care of my Rosie for me. Can you do that? Jojo nods. Rosie, Dad, can ya? Jojo, yes. Rosie, Dad, thanks. She's doing what she can. Jojo, smiling. Yes, Dad. Rosie prepares the setting, tweaks Jojo's mood, then puts on an emotional performance to extract from her son what she's wanted from the start. Rosie, as dad, asks Jojo if he'll take care of his mother while he's gone, and Jojo says yes. But Rosie and Cicero don't stop there. The final and most difficult step in true persuasion involves not only changing someone's mood and mind, but inspiring them to act in new ways. Jojo's feeling better, and he's verbally agreed to start treating his mother more lovingly. Rosie then goes in for the persuasion kill. This is how our beat ends. Rosie, Dad. We've got a good kid there, Rosie. I love him to bits. Jojo, I love you too, Dad. Rosie, Dad. Almost as much as I love this stuff. She grabs a bottle of wine from the table and takes a big swig from it. Rosie, Dad. Boy, does that taste good. Reminds me of dancing with my Rosie at the Red Salon. Remember, honey? Rosie. I do, babe. She stumbles across to the record player, turns up the music, and starts dancing like a loon in the lounge. Rosie, Dad voice. Hey kid, don't just sit there. Come dance with your parents. Jojo laughs and gives in. He goes and dances with his mother. Rosie holds her son close, squeezing him tightly, kissing him, not letting go. Rosie floats into a memory of a better time and playfully invites Jojo to come along. At this point, all of his emotional and intellectual guards are down. He laughs and gives in, joining his mother in a pretend dance at a remembered salon from a better time. Jojo may have won the proxy war over dinner, but Rosie is the decided victor in this scene. She has reached the ultimate and most challenging goal in the art of persuasion, changing someone's willingness to act. She brought her sullen son to his feet and inspired him to dance. Ask yourself what your character's goals are from a rhetorical perspective. Consider the artful steps your protagonist must take to change their adversary's mood, mind, and willingness to act, sometimes leading to a beautiful and life-affirming result that is good for everyone. That's the art of persuasion. Thanks for listening to this episode of Script Bits. I'd like to thank Graham Webster for composing our music. For updates and the latest episodes, please follow us on Twitter at Script Bits Show or find our website, scriptbitspodcast.com. And you can always reach out to me personally at bruff at scriptbitspodcast.com. That's B-R-O-U-G-H at scriptbitspodcast.com. Hit me up with your thoughts on this episode or anything else, and I'll discuss them at the beginning of our next show. Let's keep the dialogue going. My name is Bruff Hansen, and this is Script Bits.